Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. But it should be to your left a few pages and you'll find yourselves in Philippians chapter 4. Look with me beginning in verse 10 this morning is where we will pick up. Paul is making a little bit of a change here in the direction and uh, a little bit of change in the intent of what he's saying here. He's kind of wrapping up this letter. And really though this isn't the theme of the letter. The theme of the letter is, um, is really satisfaction and joy and wholeness in Christ. Uh, nonetheless, verses 10 through 20 seem to be the purpose for the letter. When we ask ourselves, why did Paul sit down and write? Uh, he really intended to write and started to write this section. It's really a thank you note to this church for their kind and generous and gracious provisions for him as he's doing ministry. Though that's not the theme, that's likely why he sat down. And uh, Paul being a good a uh, preacher had to write so much else before he got to the point. Um, nonetheless, there's still much we can learn from these verses, and today we'll consider verses 10 through 13, um, looking at the subject of contentment. I have found over the years, that's a favorite word among Christians, but I think it's a largely misunderstood word. It's a recognized um discipline that most of us would confess we lack in, we lack true contentment, and yet, it's been my experience, we don't really have a good grasp of what biblical contentment is. We know things like the world around us isn't content, and we know that because we see them, and we see, our, see it in ourselves, we chase after things all the time. Things to fill a void, things to satisfy a yearning, things to find pleasure in, things to find purpose in, and we see that and we say that's not contentment, but we don't derive from that a good definition of contentment. So this morning my goal is to lay out what true biblical contentment is and also lay out how we are to get it, because I think that's what Paul does. Those two things actually are inseparable. True contentment and how we get it go hand in hand. And I think, again, that's how Paul, uh, that's what Paul is saying in verses 10 through 13. So look with me at these verses. Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul writes and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him 
who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Quite a bit of what Paul wrote here, especially in verses 10 and and, uh, verse 14 there, we're going to consider at another time. But I want to lay out to you three things about contentment. He says in verse uh, 12, the secrets of facing plenty and hunger. I want to call them the secrets of contentment. The first one comes in verse 10, and it begins with a proper recognition or a proper understanding of how we are provided for, how our needs are met, the source of our provision, a proper understanding of the source of our provision. Now Paul writes, and he acknowledges in verse 10, that this church has cared for him. He uses the word concern and he says, you've revived your concern for me. You've revived your care for me. And he's going to tell us in verses 15 and 16 exactly what he means. If you look over in verse 15 and 16, he tells us this church has before previously cared for him. He says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul writes in verse 10, he says, I'm rejoicing and I'm thankful because you're caring for me again. Not because they didn't care for him before. Notice in verse 10, he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have opportunity. And now, by God's providence, you do have opportunity. And when you had opportunity, you took it advantage of it and you expressed your care for me you expressed your concern for me by giving this gift verse 15 by doing what you did before giving and receiving and he says in verse 10 you have given and revived your concern for me at length it's another way to say at last or it's another way to say in full It means totally, it means completely, it means almost more than enough. And some people have read Paul's words here and they chalk them up as ungrateful words uh, to an apostle who didn't really care whether or not a church provided for him. They look at his words in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, as almost condescending. And they latch on to that phrase, at length, and they say, he's almost rebuking them. That you've only partially given to me before, but finally you're doing your duty and giving to me at length. But that's not at all Paul's heart here. His heart is humbled. His heart is grateful. His heart is tender here. And he says, you have in full and totality and completely and overabundantly at length provided for my needs. As far as my needs went, is as far as your provision went. It's a, and we'll talk about this later in a couple of weeks, it's a transaction of love between Paul and this church. Even though Paul admits here and confesses and acknowledges and expresses gratitude because they cared for him, That's not where the emphasis is for Paul. The emphasis comes at the very beginning of the verse when he says, 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now this is the fourth time he's used that phrase in chapter 4. The phrase in the Lord. He's used it in verse 1. He's told the Philippian Christians to stand firm in the Lord. He used it in verse 2 when he told them to agree in the Lord. He used it in verse 4 when he told them to rejoice in the Lord. And now he uses it again for his own life in verse 10 to say, I do rejoice in the Lord or I have rejoiced in the Lord and not just merely rejoiced, I've greatly rejoiced in the Lord. But Paul's not just giving an example of rejoicing in the Lord in verse 10. He's not just calling them to do that in verse 4 and then showing them that, hey, I do what I, what I say, I practice what I preach in verse 10. He's actually giving the credit for the gift that he's received, the credit for the provision that he's received to God Himself. You see, this is no light matter for Paul. His theological framework and theological understanding of his needs being met is expressed right there in the statement, I rejoice in the Lord. You gave the gift, but God gets the credit. There's the first secret to true contentment. Knowing that everything in your life comes from the hand of the Father. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says it explicitly. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Comes from God Himself. You see, as Christians, we can say with Paul in verse 11, I'm not really in need. Because we know that whatever need we may experience at this moment is a temporary need. That our Father provides for us. That our Father graciously cares for us and he, he kindly gives to us and He constantly gives to us. In fact, Jesus tells us in the Gospels not to be worried about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear and where you're going to live or sleep or anything like that. Seek the kingdom, He says. And God will take care of you. You matter more than sparrows. He'll clothe you better than the fields. He feeds all the living creatures. He's certainly going to feed you. We have a loving, gracious, providing God. And the secret, or first secret to contentment, is realizing how and where our needs are met. If we get a really good grasp of this, that God who owns all things cares enough for us to provide for us, it reorients our entire perspective of life. Reorients our entire perspective of our own needs. It prevents us from doing what everybody else who's unregenerate does. We don't have to go to the world to find the satisfaction that we long for. We don't have to go and walk in the ways of the world for our needs to be met. We must instead trust in God. Have faith that our Father will provide. Believe in His promises. And then the door to contentment will be unlocked. And Paul begins where we all have to begin here. That if we're in need in life, 
or if we're lacking in some regard, or if we're struggling in contentment in some way or another, we need to remember from whose hand we have everything. The Father loves His children. The Father provides for His children. He may use the church. He may use people. He may use other individuals. But it all comes from Him out of a loving, gracious heart. And if that's true, church, we have no need to be afraid of being in need. Now let me give you one final word before I move on. This does not promote laziness. The Bible says that we are to be hard workers, working as if we work for the Lord Himself. It also says we're to be generous, cheerful givers. Understanding that the Lord is the one who provides for us, that everything comes from the Lord, doesn't mean we sit around and wait for it. It doesn't promote idle hands. Rather, it means the work that we do and the giving that we participate in isn't in vain. God will see it through and He will meet our needs and meet the needs of others through our efforts. God uses His church. God uses people to meet the needs of His children. But make no mistake, though they are instruments, that is all they are. God is the great, true giver and provider. Secondly, Paul says he's learned in verse 11. Learn to be content. You see, he's under no illusions to the reality of our flesh and our nature. We are, at the very core of ourselves, due to the corruption of sin, we are greedy people. Selfish people. Unsatisfied people. And yet, for those of us who've placed our faith in Christ and live under the blood of Christ, we are born again people. I hope you remember last week we talked about the comprehensive nature of redemption that God in Christ is redeeming us and one day culminating that in actually glorified new bodies. But even here and now, He's redeeming us from our desires to our motives to our pleasures to as we highlighted last week, our thinking brains, even our minds are being shaped and changed by Christ. So now that we can see rightly and think correctly and value what is truly good and what is truly right, what is truly honorable, well, part of that rewiring of our brains through redemption, part of that rethinking a properly thinking brain is learning what is right. And Paul says, contentment is worth learning. Biblical, true, godly contentment must be learned. That means, at the very least, it's a long process. Paul's not claiming To have been changed in a moment or changed overnight. Becoming content in an instant. And just like he's confessed 
vulnerably in chapter 3, he confesses now, I had to learn contentment. It's a process. It's part of what we call sanctification. It's part of that redeemed learning process. He indicates the process of it again in the language that he uses. It's past tense language in verse 11. I have learned. I've learned to be content. He says it again in verse 12. I've learned the secret of facing all of these things. Which means contentment is something we must strive for. Contentment is something we must put forth effort for. We must be diligent after it. He also says in verse 11 and verse 12 how this contentment should be applied. And this is part of his learning process. He uses a variety or a wide spectrum of needs and situations that he mentions. They're all contrasting examples. He uses three of them. In verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low versus, being, uh, versus abounding. He says the, um, he's learned the secret of facing plenty versus hunger, abundance versus need. And these low situations... In these needy situations, Paul has found this secret of contentment. But I think there's something greater to be learned. He also applies contentment to the best of situations. In verse 12, he says he's learned contentment also in times of abounding, times of plenty. Times of abundance. Not just in times of being low or hungry or needy. And here's where we begin to see the first definition of what true biblical contentment is and why it's incredibly important that you and I have a right, proper understanding of contentment and not just use the word willy-nilly. True contentment isn't just a coping mechanism for low, difficult times in life. True biblical contentment is for both the lows and the highs of life. Because true biblical contentment isn't concerned with your situation, it's concerned with your satisfaction. And we, to be content, aren't to be satisfied in any situation or circumstance or any resource or lack thereof. We're to be satisfied in a person Contentment isn't looking at the situation whatsoever. Contentment is looking at Christ. Oftentimes we use contentment as if it's this rally cry to quit complaining. And to just be strong. To stand up and wage the fight, wage the war. To hold in whatever needs we have. Times are tough and I'm complaining about it, but I just need to be content. That's not Paul's understanding of contentment. Paul says times are tough, I will be content. Paul says times are great, I will be content. Because contentment is satisfaction 
in Jesus. Notice his very intentional, comprehensive language in both verse 11 and verse 12. I have learned, he says in verse 11, in whatever situation. In verse 12 he says, in any and every circumstance. Brothers and sisters, there is no conceivable situation no conceivable circumstance in which God's people aren't to be content. And if we define contentment as supremely finding satisfaction in Christ, which I think is right, then that makes sense. For there is no situation and there is no circumstance which can rob our satisfaction in Christ. We have the blessing through salvation to enjoy Jesus as the supreme treasure forever without an ounce of dwindling, without an ounce of fading, without an ounce of that running out or running dry. See, all your resources may run out, but Christ won't. And every situation and every relationship and every circumstance may crumble all around you, but Christ won't. Finances may be tough. Bills may be due. Kids may not be being born. Relationships may be crumbling. Health may be crumbling. Government may be corrupt. Job may be unsatisfying. You may be overwhelmed. You may be underwhelmed. There is no conceivable situation where the satisfaction of Christ won't see you through to the end. In whatever situation, in any and every circumstance, Paul has learned contentment. Because contentment is being so satisfied and so filled up with Jesus that your situation, your circumstance doesn't matter. Now, hear me clearly. Contentment, even for Paul, doesn't wipe these things away. Contentment doesn't say, I'm not in need anymore because I'm just changing my mind. No, he still acknowledges I've been in need. I've faced hunger. I've been brought low. Contentment doesn't erase the situation. It doesn't remove the problem. Contentment is having the right perspective on what matters most. Let me just tell you, it's not the fleeting temporary things around us. The ever-changing circumstances that at any given time seem to drown us out. There is one rock upon which we stand. And though the waves may bash against Him constantly, He is immovable. And if you stand on Him and build on Him, you will never lack again. You know, contentment as defined that way. Contentment as defined by satisfaction in Christ is a beautiful picture of the power of the Gospel. Very few people are truly content. Even in the church, 
very few people are truly content. But if we are a people that declare with our words and our actions that our supreme treasure in life is Jesus and Jesus alone, what can explain that except for a changed heart? What can explain that except for God's power working within us? Which here's the other lesson, another lesson about contentment. Contentment is not self-improvement. Contentment is not gritting your teeth. Contentment is not simply changing your mind about your circumstance. Now, to have true biblical contentment, you have to first be changed in your heart. You have to be born again. You have to confess your sins. Repent of them. And trust in Christ. And taste the goodness of the Lord. Contentment is only for those who have come to realize that there is nothing sweeter, there is nothing better than Christ. Well, that's the third thing Paul said. I've, I've basically skipped my notes and I've gone there already. That's where verse 13 comes into play. Paul explicitly draws our attention to the Lord. <clears throat> he says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That phrase, through Him, could also be in Him. I can do all things in Him who strengthens me. When he says all things, he means what he said in verse 11 and 12. He means contentment. He means facing all of these situations and, and these innies and every circumstances. Uh, I, can, I can deal with them all. I can learn contentment in them all because... I'm in Christ. That's where I derive my strength. That's where I derive my hope. That's where I derive my life. You see, contentment is a comprehensive thing for Christians. It changes absolutely everything about our lives. Contentment touches every nook and cranny. It changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we see others. It changes how we see resources. It changes how we spend resources. It changes how we use our time. It changes what we value. It changes what we devalue. Your entire self, your entire worldview, your entire perspective is bound up in your contentment in Christ or lack thereof. The Gospel Gospel people, saved, converted, transformed people, taste that Jesus is not only just enough, He's more than enough. And He's supreme and surpassing of all my needs and all my wants and all my pursuits of pleasure. Oh, how I fear that one of the greatest Weaknesses of the church today. It's not intellect. Not even involvement. And not even attendance. It's contentment. It's looking at a world that constantly offers you and I stuff. And information. 
and writing it all off for the sake of Christ. It's being so enamored with Jesus, so bound up in the glory of Christ, so intimate and near to Him in a relationship that everything else in the world loses its luster. It doesn't shine or sparkle anymore. It doesn't hold value any longer. Our greatest issue is perhaps that we're just simply not taken up enough with Jesus. We're good at learning. We're good at doing. And we're good at screaming. Good at talking. But has Christ become so much to us that every ounce of our lives are transformed by Him? Has Jesus become so much to us that we can let go of every dollar? Has Jesus become so important to us that we spend our lives for Him instead of for ourselves? Our careers can go to the back seat. Our influence, even our reputation. Have we tasted and seen the glories of Christ to such a degree that even the best things of this world Or in a distant second place. That's the calling of the Gospel. And that is the secret. That's the only way you and I could ever face plenty and hunger, abundance and need, being brought low and abounding. And that's our calling to glorify God. I wonder if the issue of contentment is the greatest measuring precision tool to expose the condition of our heart. I think it may be at least one of the greatest tools to expose the truth of our heart. Are we unsatisfied with Christ? Are we trying to fill our lives up with other things? You know, some people try to fill their lives up with stuff. Others try to fill their lives up with the lack of stuff. Some think the more they have, the better they'll be. The more satisfied they'll be. Some think the less they have, the more satisfied they'll be. Some think the smarter they are, the more satisfied they'll be. Others think the dumber they are the more satisfied they'll be. The Scriptures tell us plainly and clearly, satisfaction is to be found nowhere else but in Christ alone. You and I can look at the issue of contentment and find the true measurement of our hearts. For some of us, an examination of our soul, of our heart, will reveal that we need to grow in contentment. Or as Paul says, we need to learn contentment. 
We need to remember uh, the importance of God alone being our only provider. A proper understanding of how our needs are met. We need to remember that contentment is to be an ever-increasing constant progress through our lives. We need to remember that contentment truly is found in Christ. It is being satisfied in Jesus. Others of you may look at your heart and examine and realize a lack of contentment reveals a lack of salvation. You're not satisfied in Christ because you're not born again. Your heart's still dead. You're more pleased with your sin than with Christ. You've never tasted the goodness of the Lord. Well, there's hope for both of us. For those of us who are born again, who just struggle with contentment, if we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God, He will help us learn contentment. Not just to face circumstances in a certain way. Not just to embrace hardship. He'll help us learn our greatest treasure and satisfaction in Christ. If you're lost this morning, there's hope for you too. Christ will save you. Did you know the Gospel is as simple as that? It's not easy, but it is simple. If you come to faith in Christ, ask for forgiveness of your sins, He'll save you. And He'll do a work in your heart and He'll do a work in your mind where you experience a satisfaction in Him that is far beyond anything this world could ever dream of offering you. Not only that, but He guarantees a future satisfaction forever with Him in eternity in heaven. Oh church, does that not well up worship in our hearts? We don't have to join the rat race. We don't have to try to find some filler to this void in our lives. We don't have to try to find satisfaction in the newest, latest thing that the world is offering. We have eternal satisfaction in Christ. If only we will go to Him. Lord, we thank You for this Word of Yours. When our needs are met, help us to rejoice greatly in You. For every need in life is met by You. Even if You use others to meet our needs, all credit and glory still goes to You. Help us, Lord, to learn in whatever situation and any and every circumstance to be content. To not be fixated on the ever-changing situations of life. Remind us, Lord, that ultimately contentment is satisfaction. And nothing satisfies the soul, the mind, the heart like You. You alone are what we need, Lord. And You transcend every need. You transcend every good gift. You are better than having plenty or being in hunger. 
matters not our station or condition in this life as long as we have You. With all Your grace and mercy, would You come and touch our hearts with Your Spirit. Remind us that our truest joy in life is only found in walking with You. Help us to shake the shackles of our culture, of our society, of our world. And cling tightly to Your promises. It's in Your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.